So we got 90 minutes. This is our only lecture on directly on antiretroviral therapy and its use, uh, but it's going to be a panel discussion of cases that we're going to go through. And Dr. Iron and I will be alternating. I'll have, I think, the first three, then he's got about two or three, and then we're going to bounce around. If we don't get to all of them, that's okay. It's more important, I think, that we cover the ones that we're going to cover in depth um, and make sure we get to some of the issues. And we've tried to pick on not just common problems in the clinic, but common problems for which there are new data, and uh, especially from Croy in February and earlier. So here we go. So this first case is a 30-year-old guy who was diagnosed on routine insurance exam, diet-controlled hypertension, no medications. Key point, ready to start therapy if you think it's appropriate. It's all over it. None, you know, don't get hung up on, well, is he ready? He's ready if you tell him to go. He's going to go. And every lab value, whatever you normally would do to confirm, it's spot-on confirmed. So don't get into the lab details. Nope, nope. Everything's accurate. So the viral load is 30,000 checks 17 times. <laughs> it really is 30,000, and a CD4 count is 650. Would you recommend starting therapy now? Yes, no, or would ask Osama bin Laden. Oop, too late. Or you just leave it to Beaver. Barbara Billingsley, Hugh Beaumont, and Jerry Mathers. As the beaver. So we have more than half of the audience would treat this person with a CD4 count of 650. That is very different than last year, I might add. So what's changed? Dr. Sweet. Obviously, people are following the guidelines, and when 50% of the guidelines panel believes everybody should be started with good level of evidence, and the other 50 say under 500, at 650, I think there's kind of a you know, that's the zone where it truly is up to you and the patient and whether the patient understands what he's accepting at the age of 30 with medications for the next 40 years. I'm not sure, but I actually said yes on this because this guy doesn't really have a lot of other comorbidities other than perhaps hypertension. If he had cardiovascular disease, it would be yet another reason to get him on earlier. So I think the audience is exactly where the guidelines writing panels are and where the evidence is. Okay. Anybody on the panel uh, not treat? Anna. Okay. Um, I think I'd want to know a little bit more about... A little closer to the mic, oh, if yeah. you don't mind. I want to know a little bit more about him, and, you know, he says he's ready, but I, I, I want a little bit more. Um, insurance status, you know, um, those kinds of things, and, and thinking through long-term, um, and, and continue the discussion, and, and then maybe consider on the, on the second or third visit. Okay. I, I do tend to do what Anna said. I would, I would say, yes, let's start you on therapy, but very rarely do I start somebody the first time I meet them. It's so sort this of is like a Kentucky a, thing? This is a Kentucky thing because we have people that tend to show up once and then move to Alabama. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like a, me. <laughs> and I have a saying, you don't get married on the first date. Okay, that's fine. All right, so, but you'd be leaning towards treatment. Yeah, I, I, would, I would absolutely say I think that's a great idea. I would talk to him, him about the drugs, but I would like for him to come back one more visit. And then I might even, we have Frank Romanelli out there. Um, we've been crazy lately, so I might even say I'm going to have you uh, meet with Frank, and then let's get going. So. Okay, Kevin? Agreed. Okay, very good. You're <laughs> yeah. leaning forward. So the guidelines you just heard are... 
and this is from January, and these could change uh, by next January, who knows, especially with the 052 data. But this is the point. I, mean, I showed this slide, I think, last year, but I think this really brings home the point. This guy's 30 in a CD4 count of 650. Some people, I think most people would treat if he got the 500 or less or 450, so that's not an issue. So it might take another five years to get there. So if you treat him at, at 650 now versus 500 later, it's about a five-year difference between 40 years of therapy, if he lives to age 7, and you might well live beyond that, versus 35. So we're only, only talking about five years versus 35 to 40. And you kind of ask yourself, you know, are we... Angels dancing on the head of a pin here? But to me, there's another question, because in that five-year period, is there harm? You know, is there harm going on in that time period? And we heard yesterday about the neurocognitive things, and there are a number of other uh, disorders. So the question to the panel and the audience now is, what is the harm? And all these are not necessarily mutually exclusive. There's no single right answer, but go ahead and vote what you think is the thing that compels you most about untreated, ther untreated disease, viral replication, for long-term harm. What do, you, what do you think? We all recognize that. Dreaming of Jeannie. So Jeannie says, whoops, how come it didn't pop up? Oh, it didn't work. <laughs> you get to vote again. This is like Chicago. <laughs> ah, inflammation wins. So, panel, Clay, what do you think? How'd you answer? How would you answer that one? I, I chose two, um, just because two really is the the main answer for one, three, four, five, and six. So, so it's a catch-all. Yeah, I'm that close to med school. I still know how to take uh, multiple choice tests. Well, you well. know what? We, everybody in this room is here because we learned how to take tests successfully. So that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, any other comments? Anybody find that one of these isn't necessarily a result of ongoing viral replication, or you have more concerns about it? Nope. I mean, that, that was the point. So we don't know. We, we don't really know that. We do know there's inflammation. You saw some of that yesterday. We do know there's, there's harm in the, in the brain, potentially. There's cardiovascular disease we're going to hear about tomorrow uh, from Dr. Post. And uh, malignancies we're not talking about so much this year. But, you know, clearly the inflammation is there. And it's, and it's one of the reasons that I think the pendulum is swinging back, plus the fact that the drugs are a little bit better tolerated and are going to be on them for quite a while. So this is a question I think that um, we heard this morning. But let's just kind of see where everybody is. Does treating HIV lead to reduced transmission of HIV? Yes, no, or depends on the sexual practices. Go ahead and vote. <laughs> Heads nodding. What is that? Knight Rider, excellent. God, what a great audience. Fantastic. So 10% thinks it depends on the sexual practice. I don't know if they meant that as a joke or they're serious, but, um, uh, you know, doorknobs? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, so um, 
Dr. Carmichael, you want to help us out with this? No, I'm just thinking about it. I asked it. Well, I won't. Go ahead. I think the real question is, and perhaps the best thing to say, is does successful HIV treatment lead to reduced risk of transmission? And I think the answer is fairly clear that that's the case. We just saw data on that earlier talk. I think the other thing, though, is that I think being in treatment, being on treatment, and being in care, certainly part of my job is to talk to people about ways to decrease transmission beyond simply controlling their viral load. So I think being in care, being treated, yes, definitely leads to less transmission of HIV. Okay. Other comments? Everyone's sort of agreeing. We can go through. I think, again, we heard about these data earlier. This is something we didn't hear this morning, but I think is really compelling. These are from Gary Marks at CDC, and basically that 25% depends on where you live, if that's 25% or 40% of the total HIV populations, this is the 25 to 40% who don't know their status, who are out there. They're responsible for 55% to 60% of the new infections. So getting them into care, linking them to care, this is also part of the national AIDS strategy and a lot of the rationale behind what Dr. Cheever told us this morning. So there's a lot of reasons. It's not a primary reason to treat. We heard about this all this morning. So I don't say treatment as. I think treatment is prevention to some degree, and we can quibble about that, but that's kind of my view of it. So let's move on to Case 2 real quick. This is a 50-year-old former IVDU who was diagnosed on routine physical exam by a primary care doctor who was kind of with it, no medications, again, understands treatment issues. Now, this is a little complicated because she comes in with a CD4 count of 30,000 and a viral load of 30,000 and CD4 250, so almost everybody would treat her, right? But her hepatitis C serology is positive, and she's got genotype 1B. We didn't talk about fibro scan too much because you can't really get that everywhere in the U.S., but it's in essence a study of elasticity of the liver and a sign of fibrosis. It's kind of an ultrasound type thing. But it suggests there's fibrosis, so she's pretty far along. So balancing out, you're going to probably want to treat the hepatitis C at some point, but would you treat with the antiretroviral therapy first? Yes, no, or maybe Sarah Palin will have an answer for us. She seems to know about Paul Revere. Let's go ahead and vote. The Alaskans are coming. Let's see what we got. Ah, so most people would treat with ARVs first. Alice. So we know that our folks are dying of liver disease when they're untreated liver disease, but also I think there's evidence to suggest that when you treat the HIV, that also does have a positive impact toward the hepatitis C. So I would go ahead and start that. We're going to probably have some trouble with her with the therapy, given that she already has fibrosis. So I think that's one positive thing we can do to help her. And I think that one of the slides yesterday showed that, that when the patient got the antiviral therapy, their hepatitis C viral load went down, or maybe I'm dreaming that. No, that was correct. You did see that. And it's perhaps due to decreasing inflammation from the ongoing replication. 
So CD4 counts, I think, is the main driving here. Mm -hmm. So um, if it were a higher CD4 count, say 650, this right. case you might want to clear the hepatitis first. Right. and then. Right. But higher CD4 counts response to hepatitis C therapy historically has been better. So that was a thought behind the question. Mm -hmm. So she gets less than 50 copies. She's tolerating it. Um, now would you recommend treatment for hepatitis C? Go ahead and vote. Harrison Ford says yes. So uh, some of the audience would not. Uh, there might be a good reason for that. Maybe cost. I don't know. Uh, what, the, what does the panel think in general here? Well, again, I, I think this requires lots of discussion. And she's obviously done pretty well with ART. Um, she needs treatment for her liver or she's going to have even bigger problems. Uh, we have much better therapy. She's a naive, so uh, this is somebody, if I were recommending treatment, it would be with one of the new protease inhibitors along with PEG and RIBA. And it's obviously going to take a lot of work to get her through it, but I think it's worth the chance because you've got her, her HIV under control, but what's going to kill her sooner is the hepatitis and her cirrhosis. Right. She tangibly. Are you there? On the yeah. There. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Um, let's bring you into the discussion. Let's. How would you counsel her in this setting? She say she only drinks uh, a couple drinks on the weekend. Uh, doesn't binge drink. Uh, what, what do you tell a patient like this? So I think in general, um, for individuals with hepatitis C, we, we recommend that they do not consume alcohol. Um, I think in her. I would recommend hepatitis C therapy, but I think uh, given, you know, the toxicities of interferon, I think, and her history of uh, intravenous drug use, I think it would be very important to get a sense of uh, her current, uh, the status of whether or not she's actually depressed. Uh -huh. And I think she would need to be closely monitored for depression, um, given the, the history of drug use as well as um, uh, the HIV, HCV co-infection. Um, and, and I would recommend no alcohol use in this situation. Um, there are some studies among individuals who are uh, mono-infected where they're starting to look at harm reduction for alcohol use among individuals with HCV mono-infection, but at this point I'm not ready to recommend that. So which of the antidepressants might you use that would be both helpful for depression but also alcohol intake? Is there one in particular? Well, that's, that's actually um, a more complicated question than you might have actually wanted an answer to. Um, but you asked. Um, so actually, um, the literature on SSRIs for individuals with alcohol misuse and depression um, demonstrates actually most likely differential responsiveness um, depending on whether or not someone has what's called either type A or type B um, alcohol uh, dependence. And type B is, is people who have early onset alcohol uh, dependence, usually prior to uh, being age 25, uh, with familial loading and more severe symptoms, whereas type A is the later onset. And there are just some recent trials that have come out that show that actually when you use SSRIs in type B, it may actually worsen the alcohol use right. as opposed to using them in type A where it actually can improve it. So a more complicated answer than you had probably wanted. So we should refer them to you. And we'll yeah, or uh, 
or somebody who knows what they're doing. Okay. Um, so which of the – now, I, I got this out of line a little bit because um, I wanted to see – to sort of set the stage for treatment. But, so now we're back to actually choosing the antiretroviral regimen, knowing we're going to be treating the hepatitis C at least for 91 percent of the audience. And remember, her CD4 count is uh, about 250. Um, so which anchor drug might you use in this 50-year-old with a CD4 count of 250 and a viral load of 35,000 or 30,000? She's wild-type virus, CCR5 tropic. The world universe is at your fingertips. Go ahead and vote. I mean, there are actually, actually kids in the U.S. now who didn't know that there was a Ponderosa before there was a steakhouse. Um, it's really quite interesting. So most people would use a boosted PI, and some would use a Fovren's. Only a little bit with Neverapine. Neverapine might be okay. What, what, what does the panel think? Well, I, I chose the Fovren's because I've already committed to treating her down the road if she wants to be, and I think it would be a lot easier to do the new protease inhibitor for hep C on top of a Fovren's. My cho other choice was Valtegravir because it looks fairly safe as well, but again, you've got a twice-a-day regimen, so um, I picked a Fovren's, the basic. Okay. Play? Barring any um, major behavioral health diagnoses, I was my same choice as well, just for the ease of dosing and giving her something easy to start with as far as pill burden and, and right. seeing how things go before we and we have And we have some drug-drug interaction there, data that was presented yesterday. Yeah. Joe Iron, do you have a, a strong feeling? You've you got a microphone on. You can. No, I, I think basically the, the, if you're looking downstream and you want to use a, a hep C protease inhibitor, then the two choices, if you want to be kind of data-driven, are either a Favrin's or Adizanavir, Ritonavir, because we actually have data which you're going to talk about. Um, I think the choice of Raltegravir um, theoretically makes sense um, because there, you don't anticipate an interaction uh, with the hepatitis uh, protease inhibitors, but, but that's given the complete absence of data, not even PK data. So right. um, uh, I, I think the audience is really you know, kind of spot on, and, and you probably make your choice based on um, the other issues that we were discussed. All right, and these are the data we saw yesterday from Mark Sokowski um, uh, that Dr. Aurora presented for us. I'm not going to dwell on it, but they did look at Favarin's, and there's dose adjustments that have to be done. I, I got the dose a little bit off yesterday, but the Tilaprevir uh, for the uh, uh, folks who are on Adizanavir, who are on Adizanavir got 750, and those who are on Favarin's got 12. Sorry, 11.25. But these are things you can look up as you go. It's not. It's only meant to be a kind of a signpost uh, somewhere on the Ponderosa that you need to look these things up. Okay. Mike, could I add? Yes, just, please. Just one thing that is very important, though, is that that um, it is specifically Adizanavir, Ritonavir, at least with yes. Tilapavir, because there is an, there are interactions with Darunavir and Lopinavir, Ritonavir. So, so it, you, you can't interchange all the boosted PIs with Tilapavir, and basically we don't know yet with Bosepavir because they, they haven't been done. So. Right, and that's the lower bullets here on yep, this slide. You can see them on here, right? Yep, and those are all in your handout that are outside. And by the way, we gave the handouts out a little bit late deliberately because we didn't want folks sort of, we wanted you to sort of catch this stuff fresh and make your decisions um, in a data absent world like I do all the time. 
Okay. So we have a 20 – this is the next case, and then we're going to turn it over to Dr. Iran. This is a 23-year-old sexually active woman who presents with a fever of 102, sore throat, and abdominal pain. But what's key is that two or so weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, she got treated at the public health department because she had an STD, they thought. And now she's got swollen tonsils, cervical lymphadenopathy, a lowish white blood count with predominantly lymphocytes and atypical lymphs. Her current RPR or HIV is negative. Monospot is negative. Rapid strep is negative. But she was treated – they had positive GC and chlamydia – or at least GC at the health department, and she got treated. Cutting to the chase, she has acute seroconversion syndrome, negative antibody, but a positive HIV RNA of 1.3 million copies. And her CD4 count is now 354. At this point, knowing that she has HIV and acute seroconversion, before she has antibody, would you observe, treat empirically, order resistance tests and treat empirically, order resistance tests and wait for that before starting therapy? Go ahead and vote. Game show mentality here. All right. So we have some early treaters and some hesitant early treaters. What's our panel think? Who's leaning forward fastest? Alice. I'll jump in here. I've only had a couple of patients, I think two, that I've treated during this phase. Mainly, I don't see very many people during this phase, but I have had two. One, we had – this was back when the recommendations say discuss with your patient, present the data. And the patient that I had had actually acute meningitis, and he was not able to work. And so it was really – our decision was based more on symptomatic. And that's easy to decide. And that was an easy one. So what did you do here? Here I chose to order the resistance test. And I probably would do the same kind of thing with the person. I don't know. I mean, you can argue you're trying to lower. So when you order the test, are you going to wait for the result or are you going to treat them now? I have to say, again, it would depend on my conversation with that patient. They want to be treated. Then I would potentially treat them. Okay. Dissenting views? Anybody on the panel not treat? Come on, Clay. Anna. I was lucky enough to be in a situation where the resistance test would be back in seven to ten days. And I could afford to wait that long. Because I've seen a number who came back with NNRTI resistance. And if I had started treatment with the first drug, you know, I thought of, say, a triple in one pill, I would have potentially wasted that, you know, in thinking about when they got back. The second is, again, for many of us, if you're in a situation where you have to wait for your ADAPT application and you don't have the medications, it will take you ten to fourteen days to apply for ADAPT or figure out how you're going to get your drugs anyway. Well, assume you had access. Come to the microphone, yeah. The guidelines clearly say treat anybody that's sick. She's sick. I would take that as carte blanche to go ahead and treat. Now, we have data that says that treating these early individuals early really does not appear to make a long-term benefit from the previous data of treating individuals where we thought we could get a better immune response or protect their immune response. My question is, 
would there be harm? She's obviously sick now. I think if I put her on antiretrovirals now, we can get the viral load down. She can get a better immune constitution. And then maybe down the line, stopping her and seeing where she – That's, a future, that's a future question in this exercise. So we'll postpone the latter part, but Dr. Iran. The one thing that I would say about kind of waiting for the resistance test is that – I mean, they're, they're, I think it's um, really equivocal whether you should treat um, someone in acute infection or not. Th though if they're symptomatic, I think there's a strong argument for it. Um, but I will say if you're going to do it, the, the evolution of what happens in acute infection is so rapid. Um, if you're going to subject the person to the kind of the unknowns of treating them, I would argue you, you shouldn't wait, even, even seven days. Most people will fully seroconvert in seven days. It's an incredibly rapid process. And we know what's happening in the lymph nodes and in the gut is, is very, very rapid also. So um, if you're going to do it, I, I would do it. And if that means you should pick a boosted protease inhibitor, at least for the initial um, you know, to you get that resistance test back, then then then, then I, I would do it that way. Um, right. uh, I agree that there, you know, you, yeah. you could you could argue either point, but if you're going to do it, I would do it as quick as you could. So. so I picked all these cases because they're either controversial or there or there are new data, and this was one of the controversial ones. So there isn't necessarily a right or wrong answer, and I think we've gotten the gist of both sides of the argument. What I'm showing you here is something called the FIBIG classifications associated with acute seroconversion. You see the virus comes up very nicely here, and it's in your handout. And you can see antibody responses out here. But if you look at the pathogenesis data or the pathology from serial gut biopsies, either in animal studies or in humans, there's a lot of destruction that happens even by the time they present, and even more so just in the next two or three days. So it might be the type of thing where you make a best guess about what types of therapies that you might want to use. If you're worried about it in an RTI, you might not use that. Or getting to the next question, which regimen might you use? Assuming you don't have the resistance test in front of you, let's assume this is empiric, uh, what might you use here? And you have a choice between two drugs in the usual or kind of a mega heart, mega heart right off the bat. Let's go ahead and vote. Holy smokes. Oh, okay. I mean, that threw me for a minute. I guess that was their car in the Munster Mobile or something, but um, Herman Munster is right there. So, um, wow, that's interesting. So most people would use a boosted PI and two drugs, but no, very few people going for the mega heart. Anybody on the panel want a mega heart ties? Any mega hearts out there? Any large hearts? <laughs> big boy hearts? Be a big boy clown? Anybody? Clay? I do have some experience using the mega heart. It's, it's something that my partner likes to do. That's always good to blame somebody else. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the, good strategy. It's also a, a medical school. It's called roundsmanship. Yes. Bounce off. Um, but we, we do occasionally do this. Notice I use we, not he, uh -huh. um, especially if the viral load is quite high. We're using a new lab where they're quantifying viral loads beyond 500,000. So sometimes we'll get a viral load back that's, you know, 
3.3. And this one was 2.3 million. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we have done that, and then we'll peel off the raltegravir, just knowing it has yep. a low barrier to resistance and can get beat up a little easier than the boosted PI. Right. Um, once they become undetectable. So that rationale is precisely what led to a study that was presented at Croy. I don't know how many people have seen this from Markowitz. Few. Good. That's why I was presenting it. So everyone kind of hypothesized, including Marty Markowitz, that megaheart, that is, they randomized early acute infection, one to two, to tenofovir FTC plus one of the boosted PIs, and then uh, two, two to one got Maraviroc and Raltegravir in addition, knowing that R5 virus is usually the one that's transmitted. So it was five drugs versus three, and at 48 weeks, there really wasn't any difference. In other words, everyone on the three-drug regimen was undetectable, and 20 of the 23 on the five-drug, at least initially, were undetectable. Um, and, and only two of 31 patients had RNA below the limit of detection by single copy assay, and it didn't matter uh, if they had gotten the mega heart or not. And to their surprise, and I think a lot of people in the audience are surprised, that that extra drug didn't add the protection. You think back to Dr. Silicano's talk yesterday morning. Remember when he showed a couple things. One was the power of the drug based on its slope and also the notion that you can that intensification typically doesn't improve the protection of the uninfected cells from becoming infected. And I think this is another set of data that supports exactly what he told us yesterday in a different clinical setting. So it's pretty interesting. So I'm glad to see, Clay, that you were. Someone had to take the Yeah, you were, you were smart enough to know not to jump on that, I guess. All right. So now, now we're going to get back to the question that was raised. All right. So you start the, this lady on therapy. It showed wild type virus. So Dr. Wong is okay now. And she's got him on treatment. And there are less than 50 copies. CD4 count went from the mid 300s now to 680. And she's doing great. Happy, happy. Tolerating the medicines well. How long are you going to continue this regimen? She's now on a three-drug regimen, whatever you chose. Would you go another six months for a year? Would you go for another year or two? Would you stop at some other vague time in the future or not stop at all and continue and definitely go ahead and vote? Space. Space. The final frontier. You know, I, I can't figure out, how did a guy go from leading the enterprise to Priceline Negotiator. <laughs> you talk about a career dive. I mean, holy smokes. All right, let's see what we got. Whoa, 90%. 90% would not stop. Is that representative of the panel? Anybody, anybody on the panel want to stop? Well, I could. Do you want to come? Would you have stopped? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the bait. I guess I would have. Okay. I, I said somewhere between six months and a year and see what her uh, immune reconstitution did and see where her viral set point went. By that time, I would guess her CD4 would have raised. And I, I think I would have had some time to play with it and observe. Good. I, I don't think there's, there's no – this is where there's a difference between dogma and dog manure, right, <laughs> that, that it changes about every year about what we do. Go ahead. I just keep wondering when I when – we're talking about treating people who are asymptomatic with CD4 counts of 650. If any any of you all are from uh, uh, states that uh, have the ADAP waiting list, or uh, <laughs> you know, 
And, you know, yes, for the individual patient, you may not want to take that into account. But, yeah. you know, in our clinic in New Orleans, all of our patients access just about eight at right. once. Right. So your concern is just about resource availability and stuff. Right, right. right. And we don't want to think about that. But no, not for this discussion. <laughs> but um, it's always there. That's a great point. You know, are, are my patients with uh, 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 CD4 counts less than 50? Are they going to have to wait for that? Well, so these are all, those are all good questions, and I think you're right. We have to consider all those things, and it becomes kind of a public health or public access versus individual thing, and, and you're right. But I was joking a little bit, but kind of serious for this discussion in, in the ideal Let's say drugs were limitless and available. What's the right thing to do clinically? So, Donna? Well, again, I, I have to, and I, I deal with the cost issue, and I'm on the Hill a lot, and I do understand that. One, in terms of advocacy, we have to stand up and say our patients deserve the best of care. We are the United States. We're supposed to have the best health care system, so we make sure that they get it. But I'm trying to be consistent. That first one I started at 650, and she'd never been sick. This one I have a chance, if we believe in the inflammation theory that Mike has put up here, of really avoiding much inflammation for the earlier part of her life, and maybe we can save her from the interval media thickness increase and all the things that do cause harm down the road. So I'm trying to be consistent, and I do understand the ADAP and all of that, but I think that's another side of our hat, and we all ought to be lobbying and talking to people and making sure that we can continue to do the best for our patients. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And I know it's tough, but I think we have to fight the business right. of the ADAP waiting right. list. Go ahead. Um, I'm seeing PCP and KS way more if I will ever see acute seroconversions. So uh -huh. I'm just curious what you think the national statistics are of, of actually people getting diagnosed in that. Phase. Yeah, so it's an issue of awareness on one hand. So it depends on, it depends on the setting. Number one, Everyone's seroconverted who's infected, by definition, right? They went from seronegative to seropositive. The real question is how many of them were symptomatic at the time of conversion, and that varies. We don't really know the full answer, but we do know the people who show up, and those are the pretty symptomatic acute seroconverters like her. And in that setting, that's, that's where we're going to actually find them. Now, Dr. Iran's site, as well as ours and others, have been screening health departments and, and other places for for serology, looking for antigen or virus without antibody, and we discover a fair number of seroconverters who are not symptomatic at the health department, but the answer really isn't known. But I think if you're really on the lookout, you can find, we find about, I don't know, 20 cases a year or something like that. Joe? Yeah, that's about, that's about what we find, and I'd make a couple of points about this particular case. I really think that people we find that are that come to us because of symptoms are probably different than the you know 98% that don't. Because then several times we've tried to study these folks, and there was an ACTG study where they looked at immediate therapy uh, versus uh, you know deferring therapy, and they actually had to stop the study because the people who deferred therapy actually fell their CD4 fell so quickly they, they actually reached an indication. So they weren't right. able to even look at this kind of set point issue. So I think people that show up for um, with symptomatic acute infection are a subset of all those you know, right. thousands of people. The other thing I would uh, point I would make about this particular one is I would be careful stopping her therapy. I wouldn't be against it necessarily, 
But she may actually have recreate an acute infection scenario depending on how quickly. I've certainly seen that several times where the person, you stop therapy and people actually, you know, develop acute infection symptoms all over again. So I would be very cautious if I was going to stop therapy. Real quick because we want to move on. One more point. I'm not going to give up easily on this. There's a certain number of people that are elite controllers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You cannot tell from her initial response where she's going to wind up. That's right. And I think we need to figure that out somewhere along the line. And I was going to mention that. So we do have data from Eric Rosenberg from the late 90s to early 2000s where they took patients exactly like this, treated for about a year, stopped therapy. Some of them stayed suppressed. But most of them ultimately got some rebound to some other set point. The question was, is our set point lower? But a lot of that was in the time before we started understanding about the inflammation and a lot of the other rationale. So I think the reason, not to say you're wrong, I'm not trying to say that, but I think the reason that now 90% of this audience is saying continue is, one, our recommendations are 500 or less for asymptomatics. She was symptomatic, as you said. And two, is this whole notion of inflammation and perhaps damage that it's doing. And we don't really know the right, the right answers. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Iran, and he's going to take the next several cases. Okay, so there's no way that I can be as funny as Mike. That's not possible. Um, and uh, some of the cases, and I'll be thrilled to get the, the panel's input, but um, uh, are really just kind of basic cases to see where you guys all are. So this first case is a man, 45 years old. His C4 is 245. He's got a high viral load. And it's been repeated. He's come back to clinic. You've talked to him. Um, you have his uh, baseline genotype back. It's wild type. He's actually immune uh, to hepatitis B and has normal, ref uh, normal renal function. The only thing he insists on is that he have a once daily regimen. He wants to start heart. So there's no right answer here. I'm really just curious on what you guys would pick. And, and you can see the uh, recommended regimens, but notice there's a couple of twists. There's raltegravir dosed once daily, and then there's this new um, therapy that was recently improved, uh, rilpivirine. Okay, there we go. Uh, I know this one. <laughs> That's my family, right? Exactly. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Um, okay. Then i got to hit the button again. There it is. Wow. Uh, th well, this is like right out of the Alabama. This is exactly what they do um, at, at, at UAB. It's been, it's been published. This is, this is perfect. I, I was really curious to see whether anybody at all um, was interested in, in uh, picking one daily raltegravir. I guess the news is already out on that. Um, and then uh, the issue of uh, rilpivirine, which is now known as edurant or edurant or something. If you're French, it sounds much better. Um, it's wrong, um, apparently. <laughs> uh, and, and nobody is really picking an, uh, a back of your 3TC-based regimen. So let me just show you. Um, we did do a large study um, comparing um, raltegravir once a day versus raltegravir twice a day, treatment-naive patients. This is almost a 400-patient per arm study. And, and what we saw, first of all, is that Q-Day actually did quite well. 83% um, of the individuals treated once daily with raltegravir in a, in a blinded study uh, were below detectable. Um, but twice daily did uh, 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 better both numerically and it turns out also significantly better. So the once daily raltegravir was actually significantly worse. So um, 
that's not a regimen that uh, someone's ever going to come and, and detail you about in your office. Um, whether it's a regimen you might ever think about using, you can look at these data. To, hopefully the study will get published soon enough and, and, and you can look at it very carefully. Um, what concerned us was that if you split up the patients between high viral load and, and low viral load, if you look to the left-hand side of the, of the uh, slide, those are patients with higher viral loads at baseline, greater than 100,000. And you can see a clear difference um, that is apparent um, you know, very, very rapidly. You, you couldn't fail until um, uh, 16 weeks, but if you failed at 16 weeks, then, then the, the time of failure was set at zero. On the other hand, if you um, uh, had a lower viral load, there, there wasn't as much uh, uh, difference uh, between the two arms. Um, so now we'll, we'll switch it up a little bit and we'll make it a little bit harder. Um, so this is uh, RM again. Um, he's got hypertension, but he's different this time. Now he's also got diabetes. He's got elevated uh, lipids, and what I mean by that is that his um, LDL cholesterol is about 150 and his um, uh, HDL is low. Um, he has a creatinine clearance of 35. Um, his CD4 is lower than it was, 58. And his viral load's a little bit lower, 47,000. So, so now what are you going to recommend? Um, this is uh, obviously a little bit tougher. Remember, his creatinine clearance is 35, and he's got multiple different comorbidities. No, I'll take it twice a day, not once a day, twice a day. Okay. I, I, I think I was at a meeting once with Mike. Uh, um, this was, you know, uh, back in the olden days. It was in Bermuda where we could have meetings in Bermuda. And they actually announced that they were going to, we were all going to go out on a boat for a three-hour tour. <laughs> I didn't go. <laughs> Mike was they kept firing. calling you Skipper. <laughs> Skipper. I don't know what that meant. So I'm going to see what the audience says, and then here is where we really need the the, the panel. Um, so people are some people are willing to give um, tenofovir um, every other day um, with FTC and that fixed dose combination, um, and most people are, are moving to a bacavir 3TC. Um, so there, I'm sure everybody in the panel might have an opinion about this. So I'm going to start with Alice and then mm -hmm. move move down. What, um, there, there's a wrong answer here. There's one uh, wrong answer. Um, I, I would move toward five or seven, and probably on five, um, I don't exactly like five. I'd have to recalculate, but I'm not sure that 3TC might even need to be renally adjusted there. I can't remember. It's either... Uh, what the cutoff is, but we might need to adjust that, yeah. um, and that would be my only thing about that. I tend, I tend to be a chicken. I've kind of gotten burnt um, with uh, Vyreed, and when they, when they're, um, when they start off with a lower uh, creatinine clearance, I tend to steer away from it. That doesn't mean I will always steer away from it, but initially. So your something else would be you would break up the 3TC, or, or you would do? No, I would probably break up the back of your and the 3TC. Yeah, I'm not sure know. exactly where the cutoff is. Uh, yeah, I never really worry about I feel about like we're close, but I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. So. I think uh, it's 30. Yeah, e it's even if it was, I wouldn't yeah. care. Yeah. Um, to be honest. But I, w I personally um, would steer away just from. Sure. Um, Kevin, you want, you're closest to, to the microphone. Do you want to offer a. No, I think, I think I would actually agree that five was a choice I would have made. I think the question is, you know, there's this issue that lingers about Abakavir. Uh, uh, increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease sure. in a person who's at obviously has lots of other risk factors. 
But, again, like Alice said, Tenofovir scares me a little more than the issues around Abacavir because I think the data has been pretty much all over the place on that. And so I think controlling the virus is probably more important than controlling the virus without doing additional harm. And I'm not convinced that the data supports that Abacavir actually does increase the risk of cardiovascular events. Certainly you can find data on both sides of the issue. And most recently the FDA study that was presented at the CROI meeting, certainly at least over the short term, meaning two to four years, in people who weren't previously treated, the evidence of cardiovascular risk was literally zero. It might be different longer term. It might be different in people who are treatment experienced and that sort of thing. Was anybody comfortable in the panel with every other day Tenofovir FTC in this patient? Nobody was. Somebody out there was. I would be. Donna. No, I think this, I mean, just as the data with Abacavir, I find not convincing one way or the other. I think the, I mean, Fanconi's is Fanconi's. And we recently had one, and that's a very definite Tenofovir-induced syndrome. But if you look at the data, it may be that the HIV is contributing to this renal insufficiency, and the most important thing is to get his HIV under control. So I wouldn't necessarily just throw away the best new backbone that we have. We don't know it's 5701. I assume we would get it before you would do five. But I would not relegate him forever to not being able to use Tenofovir without a try. Yeah. I would have probably picked one of the every other day regimens. Answer number one obviously is wrong, right, because you can't dose adjust in that setting. I don't know how many people are aware of these data. These data surprised me and would make me nervous about choice number five. This is from the ACDG study, 5202, that compared Abacavir 3TC with Tenofovir FTC head-to-head. I think everybody is familiar with the high viral load issue in Abacavir. But I wasn't as familiar with the low CD4 cell count issue in Abacavir. So if you look, again, to the left side of the slide, remember his CD4 was 47. It's very clear that, at least in this study, the response to an Abacavir 3TC-containing regimen at low CD4 was suboptimal. And that's at either low viral load, which is the dark green, or high viral load, which is the light green. And you can see with Tenofovir FTC, it's pretty much a straight line all the way across. And this is, remember, there were two backbones in 5202. There was Efavirenz and Atazanavir, Ritonavir. And this is, you know, including both backbones there. So, again, that made me a little anxious about choice five. And the other thing that we thought about was what about choice six, which would have been a nucleoside-sparing regimen. And we looked at Darunavir, Ritonavir, Raltegravir, and we thought we were incredibly clever because they were two very important, potent drugs, which were well-tolerated. And we decided to do a single-arm study because we felt that it would be so good, why waste time with a comparator arm? We'll just enroll everybody. And we actually saw quite a few virologic failures. In fact, out of 112 patients, we had actually 28 virologic failures. And it was the people with high viral loads that actually were more likely to fail, substantially more likely. So, 
I think, you know, preferred regimens are preferred for a reason. Um, and and uh, if you're going to experiment, you, you need to be very, very careful. So we have a, 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 yes, a man uh, at the microphone. Yes, Dr. Bart from Montgomery, Alabama. Um, a comment and a question to the panel. About the first question, uh, TMC-278, the study showed that if the water load is more than 100,000, there is a good chance of a fifth fraction having virologic failure. So we've got to be careful about uh, picking that in a person with... 267,000 uh, water load. Um, the second thing is that about the option of the triple regimen uh, uh, FDC, uh, I mean basically a tripler, uh, in a person with uh, hypertension at age 45 and a water load uh, being at 267,000, what does the panel think about uh, starting them on a boosted uh, PI based regimen instead of a single tablet regimen? Thanks. Well, I, I think that the, the concern about the single tablet regimen would be the, the tenoff of your FTC and, and the creatinine clearance. But, but let's say his creatinine clearance was, was, was normal. I, I think you would have seen um, uh, the percentage just like um, uh, with the first case. It mostly would have been the single tablet regimen. Um, I think, and I don't know that we get to discuss this. I will talk a little bit about rilpivirine in my uh, uh, talk after this, but um, one advantage to rilpivirine and some of the low viral load is there, there are, um, it even has less of an effect on lipids than, than efavirin. So, so that's a potential uh, point where you, you might consider it. Um, so, but let's keep going because, oh no, go ahead. So I was, my name is Alex Gonzalez. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I was wondering, what about using a nuke sparing regimen with three active drugs instead of just two? Yeah, I, I think that many people have said, you, you, you know, if you just thrown in 3TC or FTC, you would have had a very successful regimen and it's a relatively safe and, and someday 3TC will be generic, though we don't know. It is generic, it's just no one can make it, apparently, um, except people in India um, and, and China and, and Thailand, but nobody in the United States. <laughs> Um, so uh, uh, I, that's a very good point and, and probably should be studied. I, I know that there's a large study um, going on looking at lopinavir, ritonavir, 3TC um, as an initial regimen because some people argue maybe you need a reverse transcriptase inhibitor. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe that was why well, we saw the virologic failures. Go, go. Yeah, again, that, that, I think it's plausible. It's just ne never, been, never been studied. So I think, um, uh, you know, and, and the, the downside risk might be the fail. If you had rebound, you, it might end up with resistance to a couple of classes. But I, I think, you know, um, we are going to need alternative regimens. They're, they're just, you know, not being explored very much because there aren't very many large studies now being done looking at those strategies. Go ahead. Go ahead. So yeah, I might consider, well, first of all, he has some background comorbidities that probably need to be treated that are affecting his renal function. So I would aggressively treat his hypertension, his diabetes, and probably use an ACE to try to help me do that. And you might start with, as you suggest, a QOD tenofovir-based regimen, but if his renal function improves by treating the background morbidities, you might then be able to escalate the, the treatment. Yeah, I, I would have done that. I think that's what Donna was saying. I think we're, we're on the same page with that. In fact, I've, I had recently a patient like this and had quite a debate with the um, nephrologist over what I wanted to do. 
but uh, we ended up putting him on tenofovir, and he has renal function along with an ACE and getting his hemoglobin A1C down to a more reasonable regimen, his blood pressure down, his renal function improved. My guess is people don't argue with you very much. <laughs> they, they argue with me a lot. They argue, but they don't win. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Um, okay, so now we have a, um, a case maybe that plays into um, uh, what our uh, uh, questioner over here uh, was interested in. So this is a woman this time, and this, I kind of stole this case from Mike. It's actually a Mike's case, but um, I, I changed it around a little bit. To, this is like true confessions. Um, so uh, she was recently diagnosed. Her CD4 is 282. Her viral load is 46,000. She has a wild-type genotype. She's hepatitis B surface antigen positive, and she has an um, impressive hepatitis B viral load, which is kind of typical, um, I think, for, for co-infected patients. Very, very high hepatitis B viral loads. Um, her creatinine is 1.3, and, and that's her estimated creatinine clearance. She has a male partner of, of five years. He also tests HIV positive. Um, they occasionally use a condom, and... She you know, says to you almost a little bit tearfully that uh, she's always wanted a child, though um, um, she has actually no specific plans right this minute um, uh, to get pregnant. Um, and so um, uh, which, NRT, uh, which nukes uh, would you include? And, and you know that she's HLA-B5701 negative. So um, uh, I don't know. Can, can I go backwards? Just Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, just... So remember, she's, uh, her creatinine clearance is there, uh, and she's uh, Hep B uh, positive. So go ahead and pick your nukes. Whoa. You... <laughs> How did that happen? Try it again. You got it all right, by the way. Okay, I've got to hit the button again. I'm learning. Well, I think <laughs> excellent. Do we have any discussion here for the nukes uh, from uh, uh, Anna? I haven't or Clay haven't. Um, that's kind my, of a, that's what I chose. Kind I mean, of a no-brainer, right? The patient's 34, not yeah. 44, so I would go straight to trying to aggressively counsel her to hold off on um, getting pregnant. Right. Yes. Trying to get the, the hepatitis B viral load down. Right. Yeah. Okay, and we're going to get to the whole pregnancy issue in a minute, I think. Now, here's a slightly uh, tougher question, I think, um, which is which anchor drug would you use um, in, in this particular setting? And um, there's, there's the whole long list of them right there. And, and remember, um, she's 34, and Clay just kind of updated us on, on her kind of wishy, uncertain pregnancy intentions. So go ahead, go. X-Files. Mike is just so smart. Well, it's time to watch all this television. Um, okay, great. So um, uh, you can see the choices here. Most everybody, uh, virtually everybody, is actually going with a boosted protease inhibitor. Um, and and uh, I'm, I'm curious what, what the uh, panel would do here. Um, so, um, so, so mine. I chose deafavirenz because I wanted to go easy and have the discussion about pregnancy and say, okay, let's go six months, let's see how your hepatitis B is doing, and then switch a regimen for you to conceive. And wh why not rilpivirine? It's not a single pill uh, yet. August. Yeah, but the 
data. <laughs> well, sorry. I, I mean, I looked at it and I wasn't impressed. I okay. Mean, okay. Okay. That's all right. That's fair. Kevin is, so, everybody's moving to the microphone. No, I, I think in some ways, you know, I think the feeling about recovering sort of reflects what my father taught me a long time ago. You know, never be the first person to use a new drug or the last person to start using an old one. And, and you know, I, we blew that out of the water the whole time I treated people with HIV. I wanted to be using the newest stuff. But now we've really got a mature uh, pharmacopoeia in some ways. And so I'm really not sure, again, reviewing the data, I find myself saying, oh, oh, great, you know, but mm -hmm. I don't see myself writing a prescription anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Donna? Well, I, uh, I mean, I always trust my patients, but 50% of pregnancies in this country are unintended, not unwanted. And she, I would have, I mean, I use a lot of ephedrines. I pick number four simply because I would worry. She gets to feeling a little bit better. There may be more activity than you. I, mean, I just, it's very difficult because if she wants that baby, I don't want to have any hand in not having it be the best baby. Right. Um, Neverapine, nobody, 1% one, 1 there picked Neverapine. Um, I think her, her CD4, I have to remember, was like 2-something. 282. 282, so it's above that kind of magical 250 yeah. mark. And that, I guess we're... If it had been lower, if it had been lower, I might have considered We're kind of rules-driven. Yeah. But if it had been lower, it actually might, might have been a nice choice for yeah. her because mm -hmm. of her desire for pregnancy, too. Mm -hmm. And there's a once a day now. And it's once a day. Yep, absolutely. Um, anybody else want to make a, a, a comment here? Did you want to make a comment? Yeah. Oh, I would have just reiterated that I would not have used efavirenz in this woman given her spotty condom use. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 so, so let me just show you the, the data people feel sketchy about. This is a comparison head-to-head -head of ropivirine um, with efavirenz um, and two very large studies, ECHO and Thrive. Again, I think we're approaching um, almost 700 patients in each arm. And, and the blue is the ropivirine, the, the, the gold or whatever color that is, is efavirenz. And if you look at intention to treat, kind of missing equals failure or the, what the FDA calls a Tolover analysis, they're, they're virtually identical. Um, so, so you might wonder, well, why is the panel not running around prescribing ropivirine for, for everybody? Um, clearly, they, they weren't. Cause I, tried to, I tried to set them up to give ropivirine to this lady. Um, and I, I think that, that, as mentioned, the devil is, can be in the details. With these FDA analyses, it's a composite analysis. So a virologic failure is equal to a discontinuation for a toxicity or a discontinuation because the person doesn't come back to the clinic. If you actually look at um, uh, individuals with higher viral loads, so greater than 100,000, there is a difference. Now, um, it's not a huge difference. And, and I, you could make a case for ropivirine, but the, the difference is about 35 to 4%. Again, this is the Tolover analysis. If you read the package insert, I think the snapshot is what is in there, so that the numbers are going to be a little bit different. Um, in fact, in, if you look at the low viral load group, which this woman would have fit into, actually um, uh, significantly more people on ropivirine responded. So uh, I, I don't think it would have been an unreasonable choice in, in, in this woman. The, the, however, the, the issue is if you do rebound, your, your risk of resistance is actually quite high. On, on ropivirine. And I think that, yeah. that concerns a, a lot of people. 
Um, and these are, these are the, the, the data on um, uh, resistance. You can see that there are about twice as many um, uh, virologic failures in, in, in this analysis. And I can tell you that um, uh, in terms of resistance, uh, there was a greater proportion of patients that had uh, two-class resistance with, with uh, rilpivirine. Um, so uh, there's someone at the microphone. Also add that, it, um, if I recall the data, that rupivirine also engendered mutations that might confer reduced susceptibility to etrovirine in the later generation and in RTI. So that's another kind of pause if you wanted to preserve a class a little more effectively. Yeah, yeah I think that's exactly true. You, you, you will see, though, though, again, it's not like we're kind of handing out thousands and thousands of prescriptions for etrovirine, but we all like to... To, to hold on to uh, additional therapy. Mike, do you want to comment yeah, I, at all? Yeah, I just want to say just to provide some balance. I mean, I think the, that for that drug, uh, for this particular patient, was actually a pretty good choice. And by August, there's going to be a one pill once a day of repliverine with um, afavirins and tenofovir, which I would call... Emtricidipine uh, What did I say? Instead of it's okay. Thank you, you got it. Uh, with uh, tenofovir and FTC, and, and instead of calling it A-tripla, I would call it B-tripla, and I think that that drug could really be quite good for her. One pill once a day fits what Anna was trying to do and pretty convenient, so by August that might be a good choice. Mm -hmm. Go Can ahead. I make a comment, please? Why not Maravarak in this lady? She has got a CCR5 virus. Mm -hmm. Given the fact that initially most patients are you know, infected with the CCR5 trophic virus, then they go on to develop the CXCR4 virus. Mm -hmm. And pregnancy category B, mm -hmm. she looks like a person who is going to be compliant. So why are we not considering Ravarak? And about the Efavarin, if you are giving to a potentially patient who can become potentially pregnant, you are not taken care of enough HIV-positive women. In my practice, I have been doing this for almost 20 years, I have had now almost 500 pregnancies, and all these 500 women said, oh, I am practicing safe sex. <laughs> and some of them have become pregnant three times. So I have made a rule in my clinic. It's immaculate conception. Yes. <laughs> I have made a rule. Unless the woman brings a copy of her BTL, Tubal ligation, hysterectomy, even if she stands on her head, no effort. Okay. So, so I, I, to comment, I don't know whether to clap or worry about kind of paternalism, but, um, uh, but um, I, I think that Maravarak, I mean, if you're anxious about using Wilpivirine, and I think Maravarak, we have the, the, the author right here, uh, I would suggests that Maravarak, at least in the head-to-head -head comparison with the Faravins, didn't even fare as well as, as uh, Rilpivirine, though you have less resistance issues. Um, we now have a better assay, and, and also uh, Maravarak was never really partnered with Tenofovir FTC. There are actually two patients total that developed Raltegravir resistance if given BID. So while it does have some fragility to it, if you take it, um, it actually does relatively well. So uh, go ahead at the back, and we should then keep moving, I think. Uh, so since we're talking about real, uh, real, real pivoting, one of the things that's concerned me the most about that drug, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, and that's the fact that if you look at the pharmacodynamic data, it's supposed to be taken with a meal, which is pretty important, but it has to be a low-protein meal because protein really interfered with the drug's uh, AUC. And uh, as it starts to move into the real world out of the study environment, I'm really 
concern about how that's going to play out. I mean, I find that to be a pretty significant dietary restriction for at least some of our patients, and that's one of the things that I'm kind of nervous about as this starts to get... Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm unaware of that particular restriction, that it needs to be a low-protein meal. That, I know what the package insert says. It certainly doesn't say that. So, um, uh, But I, I'm going to plead... I mean, you may know more than, than I do. I, it was... The, the PK studies were given with, the, you know, a moderate fat meal and, and or a high-fat meal, but but whether you had to avoid protein, I was I was unaware of that as a... As a um, so, so I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe well, we can a, straighten this out before my talk. No, well, there's an, there's a uh, upcoming, there's an ongoing study now comparing uh, a phase four sort of approach that should be able to answer because it's more real world, and it's comparing a triplet versus b triplet, and we'll see what. I, what I think if you had to tell people that they couldn't have a, a protein meal, that would be a big concern. I, I, we can look at the package insert in between sessions and see, but I wasn't aware that was an issue. Okay. Um, so, okay, let, let me, let's keep going here. Um, uh, oh, oh so, so now she becomes pregnant. Oh, so he might have been right. Oh, my God. Uh, so you chose, you chose Ropivirine, like you were Mike Sag, you chose Ropivirine. Um, her CD4 went up, her HPV DNA went down substantially, um, her HIV went down substantially, and, but now she is pregnant. She's four weeks pregnant by ultrasound and by uh, uh, last menstrual period. Her creatinine is 1.0, um, and, and she's actually very excited uh, about uh, becoming a mom. I'll go quick. So what do you do with her RTI drugs, okay? Remember, um, she's B5701 negative. This, this is a tough, tougher question, so go ahead and vote. And, uh, No idea what that song was. Um, okay, so um, panel, what are you going to do? Who wants to? Well, we have to remember she does have hepatitis B. Absolutely right. So um, I might I might um, put her on a Combavir and Viride or something like so that. So you might I, add Zidovir. I might add. Yeah. yeah. I, I really do. I guess I'm just an old fogey. I really do like AZT in pregnancy, mm -hmm. but I definitely don't want to cause her damage with her hep B. Yeah. We're not so, there yet. So even her viral load's already suppressed. You, you think there's something mystical about I don't know. I know. I'm teasing you. I like it there. Are you an obstetrician? <laughs> no. I like women and pregnant women. Well, I, I don't often it. disagree with Alice, but I, 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 there's some mystical, magical thinking about AZT. If the viral load is down and you look at the ACTG, data that they went back, it was all about whether the viral load was down, not about AZT. Yeah. So she's doing well. If it's not broken, don't fix it. I think I'd leave her alone knowing that her hep B hopefully will continue to come down. Yeah, I, I, I think the 28% that went with the Zydovia and 3DC are kind of looking at the guidelines, especially the ACOG guidelines, as Mike kind of alluded to. Um, but you really wouldn't do that. I mean, because you, you would really run the risk of, of her hepatitis B viral load coming up or um, her um, uh, and developing, you know, FTC or 3TC resistant HBV and, and, and creating a bigger problem. So just quickly, and then we're going to go back to Mike. And, and um, so what anchor drug do you choose now? Remember, we gave her Wilpivirine kind of collectively. So, so what are you going to do now uh, that she is pregnant? Um, and the, I think all the choices are there. Um, and go ahead and vote. Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, let's see what people said. Whoa, fascinating. Um, panel, uh, who hasn't had a chance to have an opinion? Um, My partner's been mumbling. So, um, provided that real pivorine is safe in pregnancy, um, then I would keep her on this regimen. I think that she's doing well and she's stable. Uh, I believe the ACOG guidelines recommend lopinavir, ritonavir, but in fact, the most important thing is virological suppression in terms of preventing maternal fetal transmission. That, that, you know, anybody want to offer a... I'd be a little bit anxious. I think uh, that certainly the PK of ropivirine is kind of right at the cusp of activity, and then we, we don't have any PK data during pregnancy. So, so I, might have, I, don't, I might have gone with choice number three, like uh, a, a fair minority of the audience, um, or, or choice number five. But I think, yeah. I think no change is also reasonable. But you, you would be kind of out on a, a, a limb in terms of, of data. So let, let, let Mike get back up here because he's, he's funnier. <laughs> oh boy, pressure, pressure, pressure. Okay, um, so I've, I've got uh, two quick cases and then we'll get it back to Joe to finish up. So uh, this is a pretty straightforward case picking up on Dr. Castro's talk yesterday. 34-year-old woman is diagnosed with TB. And as part of her evaluation, she's found to also be HIV infected. Her viral load is 76,000 and her CD4 count is less than 100. She has no significant medical condition. She started on a four-drug anti-TB therapy, and meanwhile, her genotype for HIV comes back as wild type. At what time after starting her TB therapy would you start her antiretroviral therapy? Go ahead and vote. The answer comes from the Death Star. <laughs> you are my father. Okay. So the answer is, whoa, all over the map. Uh, okay. Well, right up front. Oh, right up front. So we'll, we'll go with that. Um, who would be the immediate therapy folk? Anybody on the panel? I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, except that you're given a lot of medicines at once. Um, and, it, it, and it's been done. Um, but I think the recent data are showing that somewhere around two weeks or between two and four, and certainly not later than four if you can in this setting, because that's where the mortality advantage was. The risk is that iris comes up. Uh, but that's going to happen pretty much no matter what in her, and I think that can be managed. And um, uh, But certainly nobody's waiting out to eight weeks or very few folks. So. Uh, these are the data that, that Ken talked to us about yesterday, and I think the take-home point is that on that, um, for people with lower uh, uh, percent with AIDS death with a less than 50, uh, you can definitely tell that the earlier therapy in the first two to four weeks was associated with improved survival, which is key, and more iris as already mentioned. So now, the harder question, you have around four drugs, and let's assume that that fourth drug is rifampin, which rifampin. Did I say, what did I say? I did? Yes. Okay, rifabutin. Did I really say that? Was that on the slide? It is on the slide. Yeah. Okay, all right, rifabutin. All right, that makes it a little bit. So are we giving rifabutin? We're giving rifabutin now. Okay. I switched her over just on the fly. Uh, so she's back to where she started. Go ahead and vote. Gosh, who are 
these people who write this music for television. It is amazing what they do. All right, so we have folks on the Favrins and Boosted Yada Yada and some Rotega beer. Panel, any preference? The, I just had a guy not very long ago, and I did number four. Um, I'm not usually like a drug of the month person, but I really like Daruna beer, and I've been using it a lot lately. Um, this is a guy that I was a little bit leery of his adherence, <laughs> even though the health department's going out every day. So I, I chose four for that reason, um, just historically the patient that I had. So. Okay. Other and I did Rafibutin every yeah. other day. Yep. So I think the, the reason why I was trying to force this is in the Rafampin was to say that you probably couldn't have done that in that right. setting. That's that right. was the whole point. Yeah. And, you know, some people might argue for Maraviroc here to kind of get a little extra anti-inflammatory thing, but there's no data on that. Maybe it would help with ours. It's mm -hmm. way too early. I think twice a day dosing for that right now. Mm -hmm. the, the company is trying to work out the once a day. It's, it's not clear. Mm -hmm. So it's in the interest of time. Yeah, yeah. go ahead, well, Donna. Briefly, this is one where I do think looking at the economics does help. I mean, there's no reason in this one without need for something. That you don't have to have a boosted protease. You can use a Favrins. And rifampin is so much cheaper than rifampin. Yeah. I would I would have gone and, with rifampin and the fabrin. Yeah, and this one, the verapine would actually be a reasonable choice of okay. CD4 counts low and the viral loads less than 100,000. Yeah. That's pretty reasonable. Yeah, Could do it I once. think that actually would be a good, either yeah. one of those. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's go on to my last case before I turn it back over to Dr. Iran. Um, so this is a 34-year-old woman who was diagnosed with HIV when she was admitted to the hospital with PCP two days ago. Anybody see folks like this? <laughs> really? I thought this was unusual. So she got thrown into the ICU, and now she's on a ventilator with an FiO2 of 40. She's got an oral gastric tube in place, so you can get her meds if you want to. Uh, initial labs, CD4 counts 40, viral loads 106,000. And as far as we know, there's really no other significant medical condition, but she's got pretty bad PCP on a ventilator. So she's in the ICU. Would you start the antiretroviral therapy while she's there? Yes, no, or are you crazy? Henry Mancini. Let's see what we got. Ah, so there's a little controversy here. We got 6% saying you're nuts if you do that, uh, but 60% would do that. Uh, how about the panel? I, I said yes. Um, I think there's some data. There are actually specific data out there for PCP that those patients did better, yeah. started earlier. I don't remember. Yeah, well, I'm going to exactly. show you in a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure so you'll remind us. How about, how about in Idaho? What would you do out there? Well, she, she's already prophylaxed, I presume, for uh, virus to the PCP. Well, she, yeah, she's, got, she's on steroids. On sure. steroids, so yeah. Yeah, Boy, I, I also would push her to treat earlier yeah. than later. So she's on steroids. She's, she's gotten all the right kind of therapies. She's easier than the TB person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I didn't change the medicines around either. So, yeah, th these are the data that Alice is referring to. And uh, this has now uh, been published, um, but it was from several years ago. But they actually looked at the question of immediate versus deferred therapy, immediate while in the hospital and especially in the ICU. And it turned out that those folks actually did better in terms of progression to another AIDS-defining condition or death as a composite endpoint, it was pretty, pretty strong. The hazard ratio was, was um, uh, 
0.53, and notice that's a 99% confidence interval, not a 95. So by 95%, it was statistically significant, as you can tell by the p-value. And so I think the take-home point is that we might lean towards that. One key caveat, and this is every site is unique, and that depends on what is your relationship between the hospital and your clinic, yeah. right? Yeah. What's the relationship? Because in this study, there was a study team that visited the patient and saw them when they came out of the hospital. And so there becomes a gap. I think biologically this study says yes, but practically, getting back to the question earlier, I see um, the, our friend from Louisiana, was it, New Orleans? Yeah, she's shaking her head. Wow, what are you doing here? So it depends on where you are. It's not Biologically, it's the right thing to do, uh, but, but uh, otherwise it's um, questionable. So I'm going to fly through this case and turn it back over to Dr. Iran, basically, I'll just tell you what it was, but it's, in, it's basically a guy who's got a lot of concomitant problems, hyperlipidemia, smoker, family history, hypertension, obese, uh, now comes up, needs to be treated, high CD4 count, lipids are out of whack, HDL's low, LDL's high, got a hemoglobin A1C, it's a little bit elevated, so he's got like a metabolic syndrome brewing. Um, has a um, risk score of greater than 30 on the uh, Framington, Framingham thing. So lots of badness. Would you, would you think, <laughs> he, he agrees if you think it's a good idea. Would you put him on treatment? Yes, no. Quick vote. I just wanted to hear the music. Two men in a truck. Let's see. So most would, and I think I, think I would. Um, now, this is the key question on this one, and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Iran. Which backbone? It's, again, the viral load is, is kind of reasonable, if I remember correctly. The real question here is, is, is what do you think about the abacavir, or would you use nukes? <laughs> I actually saw a pig named Arnold Ziffel when I was in Alabama somewhere. So most people would avoid a Bacavir here. Um, and what I wanted to do is get, this is the FDA data that I wanted to show um, that, that Joe alluded to. So there's a lot of controversy, but th these data are actually from Croy, where the FDA took, I forget the number, 5,000, um, almost 10,000 patients total and looked at this in clinical trials, and the, the bottom line is there wasn't any cardiovascular risk that they could identify. And that's kind of important, I think, because remember that the risk that came out of the DAD study that showed this was all about people on a back of ear at the moment or within six months. That they went more than six months, the effect disappeared. So everybody who's on a randomized trial, randomized on a back of ear, would be in this data set on the drug. And if you're going to see a signal out of 10,000 people, you know, half and half, you should see something. And they didn't see anything. So I think it's really beyond controversial. I think this is, I'm not sure, remember the DAD was not randomized, and 45% of the people in Europe were smokers in the study. And I just bring it up just to kind of show these new data. Um, comments from the panel before I move on? I'm going to skip this. Unless you want to I'll skip that. Oops. Now we're going to stressed, suppressed but distressed. 
So any comments about the FDA data? No? Okay. Turn it back over to Dr. Iram for the last 11 minutes and 12 seconds. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the thing that impressed me the most about the FDA data was that the point estimate was, like, right on the line. And they actually did a pretty sophisticated analysis uh, saying, you know, what kind of difference could have been there and we might have missed it. But, you know, and, and really the, the type of difference that they might have missed would be like a 10 percent risk. And, and remember, with, with the DAD, it was like a 1.6, I think, it was, was, the, it was almost a 60 to 90 percent greater risk. So I, I, I think those are pretty, at least compelling data for people starting therapy. You can make arguments um, about. So um, now we're going to talk about people who we've actually successfully treated, and, and we'll probably get through one of these, I imagine. This is a 55-year-old man, uh, uh, HIV for 16 years. He's a smoker. Um, he has a family history of an MI. Um, he had one previous documented virologic failure on a, a Favrin's D14 and 3TC. Um, he thinks he may have received uh, antiretroviral therapy prior to that, but, but it w that was over 10 years ago, so he's not completely sure. Um, right now, his viral load suppressed, his CD4 is good, um, and he's on darunavir tablets once daily, and he's also on tenofovir FPC. He has intermittent diarrhea, but he feels like, you know, he can deal with it, and you can see his lipids. He has a elevated total cholesterol, a modestly but uh, a significantly elevated triglyceride, um, an HDL that's, that's actually not low, um, and an LDL that's 135. So, so not terrible lipids, but, but uh, not terrifically good lipids uh, either. Um, and its non-HDL um, is also elevated, obviously. Um, so what additional information would be most helpful to you? Um, and so you can go through the choices. Would a uh, 5701 be helpful? Uh, previous history of single dual nucleoside therapy, so, so sorting that out. A cumulative genotype, so if he actually had a genotype from after his um, previous failure. Number of previous regimens, or would you like a tropism assay on his PBMC DNA? So, so go ahead and, and vote here. Oh, sorry. I'm hitting the button, but we're, we're getting no music. Oh. Okay. Um, oh, I got to hit the button. I forget. Ah, so so people really want to know the data. Any any comments from from the panel? Yeah, I I, I, I think we can move right through that. I mean, it would be most helpful, I think, to know uh, whether what resistance he might have developed. Um, so uh, he's got diarrhea. Um, he's got some modestly abnormal lipids, but he's got a pretty um, strong uh, history, uh, family history and, and risk. So what would you do now? Would you just keep on trucking with the same therapy uh, and, and give him a statin and, and anti-diarrheal, or would you make a switch? And, and you can see your alternatives for switching. So uh, go ahead and vote. Wanted to wiggle my nose when I was little, but um, uh, nobody's switching. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, but some brave people out there are switching to uh, Raltegravir. Um, the panel. Anybody switching, trying to make his life easier, or are we just going to add more medicines and push on through? I hate adding more medicine. 
if I if if I'm going to address his lipids, I might consider let's see what happens if we switch you, particularly if he's very distressed about the diarrhea. Now, a lot of my patients, though, they're like, no, no, do not change anything. So, you know. Kevin, your voice. I would probably not want to change anything, but there's certainly a lot of other things I'd address. You know, it doesn't if you're concerned about me smoking is the first thing as far as bang for your buck, if you can get him to stop. And, you know, something again, back when I had brown hair, we really didn't talk to people much about smoking. But now I've been gratified how many people are actually able to quit when I when when you really give them the tools to do that. All right. We just have a couple more minutes. I'll show you just a little bit of data. You might remember that there was the switch Merck study, which switched people from a boosted P.I. Lopinavir to Raltegravir. And that didn't work out very well. But that was a complication study. We actually took people that were on a stable regimen that they were tolerating and went on to blinded therapy. So they had to take more pills. They actually had to have a normal cholesterol again in that study. They had to be tolerating their medicine. So the Spanish, who were smarter and more sophisticated, actually did an open-label study. It was randomized, but it was open-label, where they took people who were mostly on lopinavir, ritonavir, adizantivir, and randomized them to switch to raltegravir. And the bottom line really is this is time to therapeutic failure, which meant either stopping therapy or virologic rebound. And actually the people who switched in this particular study actually did better, not worse. And if you looked at time to virologic failure, they're really kind of completely overlapping. And what was, I think, most surprising was that people that had previous treatment failure, which were the people that did worse in the switch mark, actually did fine in this study. And when I talked to Jose Gatal, who was the senior author of this paper, he basically said, we just know the right people to switch. But he says that with a cotillion accent, and it sounds really good. The other thing you could do, potentially in this setting, you couldn't do it on tenofovir FTC, but if the patient was on a Bacovir 3TC, Kathleen Squires did a very nice study where she took patients, started them on adizantivir, ritonavir, abacavir, 3TC, and then after they were suppressed, actually dropped the ritonavir, which clearly improved the lipids, and the patient stayed suppressed. And that's basically we're looking at the suppression rates here, adizantivir in purple, adizantivir, ritonavir in that reddish color, and you can see that the overall results were very similar, and there was really no difference based on baseline viral load. Obviously, they were suppressed when the ritonavir was dropped. And then if you looked at the lipids, the lipids actually improved substantially when the ritonavir was dropped. So that would be another potential alternative. So we're actually right at... Should we run through this one really quick? Okay, so here's an HIV-positive woman for four years. She's an OR nurse. She's been on the fixed-dose combination of efavirenz and offer FTC for eight months. She's less than 50. She's adherent because of the one pill once a day. However, she has continued AM drowsiness. She's having trouble staying awake at work. She doesn't really feel like herself, and she wants a simple alternative to the medications that she's on. So go ahead and pick what you might do in this setting, and acknowledging there's very little data. So go ahead and vote.
didn't give you an opportunity to just tell her to tough it out. Um, ah, so we've, we've, we've changed people's opinions, perhaps. Um, uh, go ahead. Uh, um, Clay, we haven't, we haven't heard from Idaho, our, our own private Idaho up here. Yeah. Um, I, I chose um, four, and that's typically what we do in our clinic. Um, and usually with Adizanavir because it's once a day. She's te technically not uh, treatment naive, so you probably still could put her on once a day Darunavir uh, and get away with it. But mm -hmm. I chose four for what okay. it's worth. Any other choices here um, on the panel? I think most any of them are okay. And yeah. I think keeping her on what she's on would be tough. I mean, there's no reason for her to suffer through her morning drowsiness all the time. I would like to just sort of throw out there that depending on what her baseline viral load was, that let's say it was 20,000 or something. Mm, I didn't know, say you're right. Sir. Yeah, but if let's say it was 20,000, which was reasonable. You know, the once daily Raltegravir, you pointed out that if they had less than 100,000 copies of baseline, it worked pretty well. And the, and the, if the relative amount, you can't compare study to study, but you have 89% success versus 83% uh, success and overall, I mean, it, it's not a crazy thought, and I, I just think we should keep some balance in that. Um, I think any one of these could be good options, uh, depending on what you would want to do. We certainly. Oh, Donna, did you want to oh, say something? Maybe or, not. Five. Or, yeah, no. I would say five. Sorry. But I don't think right. I'd do. But. Okay. Hmm. Um, uh, the one issue with the switch to real pivorine is that. Ropivirine is an inducer like efavirenz, it, it, uh, but at 25 milligrams, it has very little inductive effect. And, and these are data which aren't very pleasing. There's a better graphical data, but I couldn't find the slide. Um, but basically, if you switch from efavirenz to ropivirine, you actually end up with a lower ropivirine level for, for 28 days. It's about, it's about 25, if you look at the C-min, it's about 25 to 30% lower for those first 28 days. So if you make a head-to-head, -head, just a one-off switch, um, you, you probably will have somewhat lower levels. And um, uh, we don't have yet any data to, to guide us. Um, the other potential would be to switch to uh, etrovirine, which has been studied in this setting. Um, and it's actually, uh, the CNS toxicity does improve. Um, uh, 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 you can dissolve etrovirine, as you know, uh, and some patients find that perfectly fine. They dissolve it and they take their one Tanafir FTC pill and they're happy with that. So um, I think we'll just end here. Oh, these are the data that Mike talked about. So uh, somebody asked us with the QD Merck, uh, well, what, what about people who were suppressed? Um, what, what happened to them? And what you can see, if you just focus on the center of the slide, I'm going to try to point here. This is QD versus BID um, rebounders. And you can see that numerically it, it really wasn't very different, 16 um, versus 10. Um, and in the, uh, proportion, the patients who had less than 100,000 at baseline, it was 8 versus 4, so, so uh, very small numbers. Um, uh, again, it wasn't a randomized comparison, but I think what Mike was saying was perhaps in a setting like this, you, you could go with once daily raltegravir. It would be completely off-label, so we'd have to acknowledge that, um, uh, but it may be something you could do. Um, and I think we're pretty much done. Great. Great. So thanks to the panel. Wonderful job. Really appreciate it. Um, and we had nice representation from all over the country, which is good. Um,
And Dr. Iran is, I think we have. We have time for questions. Yeah, yeah. If people have actually burning uh, questions and want to come to the microphone, um, that would be great. Dr. Raper. Uh, Tim Raper from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, could you talk with us about the, the data that supports once daily etrovirine? Um, yeah, there, there actually are very little prospective data. There, there is, there's that study that I just mentioned uh, um, that, that was a switch study, and then there's a study um, of a head-to-head -head comparison uh, done in France where they gave it once a day, where, again, pretty small study. It's about 80 patients per arm comparing it head-to-head -head with a Favrin's. Uh, and we've only seen kind of the very early data, but, but looks very similar. The issue with uh, etrovirine is that um, it actually has quite a long half-life. Um, those of you who are old enough remember when it was first presented as uh, TMC125, it had this dramatic kind of two-log drop over seven days, and everybody rushed to the microphone. And um, it was 900 milligrams twice a day at the time with the formulation, and the patients had to take 50 milligram capsules. So, so they took 18 capsules twice a day. So the company never believed they would actually improve the formulation enough, so they developed it as a BID drug. Um, but its half-life is about 28 hours, so, so it should be fine. But you're right, there, there are not a lot of data. You would certainly be in kind of a data-free zone, or at least a limited data zone, if, if you went with once-day etrovirine. Um, we're doing a, a, a single-arm study at our site uh, of 80 patients, and we've rolled about 50 patients. They, they basically seem to be doing fine, but, but it's a good point. Um, go ahead. Uh, Laura Cheever from HRSA. Just a quick question. Do you actually in your practice ever use unboosted atazanavir? I mean, there might be a study to support it, but given the pharmacokinetics of boosting, do you actually ever use unboosted atazanavir? Um, I've used it almost exclusively in the setting that uh, it's been studied, which is someone who isn't tolerating the, the ritonavir, and I've, I've, uh, I, I've um, used uh, uh, non-tenofovir nucleosides and, and, and dropped it. But it's almost, I, I don't think I've ever started someone on unboosted atazanavir. Um, I have one patient, this is true confessions, um, who has had a, a, a triple uh, bypass, he had a bi cardiac bypass, had a triple A repair, he's had a, uh, a, a, a BKA, all because he's a vasculopath. He's on 3TC and atazanavir. And he's been suppressed less than 50 now for like, eight years. So, but that's the kind of thing, you know, someone where I didn't want him to have a single like lipid particle in his body. Um, <laughs> um, when I was reading the package insert for Mopivirine, I got that feeling that not all the neurologic side effects are really gone. Would it really make any sense to switch someone like this nurse who's having trouble with the drowsiness or not? Mike, yeah, there, there was less drowsiness in that study overall, but they, they, you're right, in the package insert, that's how it plays out. But in practice, th those sort of nightmare sort of side effects, those are much higher than the efavirins are and than the replivirine are, so I think it's reasonable. They mentioned the nightmares, but I also saw they kept on talking about, well, it does cause other neurologic side effects. Yeah, and I think the problem with prospective studies is when they start asking in a blinded study, they sometimes get up to 90-plus percent reported side effects. So I'm, I think you should just sort of try it and see how it works in the setting that you think it might work. I, I think the open label study that Mike talked about might help us understand that. But, but I, I think those are, those are very good points. Um, uh, maybe we'll go to the back microphone. I didn't really pay attention to the order. I'm sorry. Um, I, I just wanted to make two quick comments about 278 since we were one of the studies that did it, um, and I'm the coordinator. Um, it is a 500 calorie and it is not low protein. It was not a, you couldn't do a protein bar. You need 
carbs and fat, and it has to be approximately 500 calories. And really, Gilead came out with 560 calories, which is kind of pushing it. But it just could not be a protein bar. And the other comment is the open label trial is going to be very pivotal in this, just because the design of the pivotal trials, Thrive and Echo, were terrible for patients. It was not a QD regimen at all. It was, you know, they were taking it all over. And we actually had one of the Sestiva failures, and it just had to do with how they took their medication. So, you know, when everyone is throwing up these slides about failure, you know, I caution everyone and say, wait until you see the open label study, because that will be where, you know, the data will come from, and you'll see it, because people will be open label, they're going to know what they're on, and they're not taking three different pills at weird hours. Right. It's one pill a night, or one pill a day for each one. Though, again, it's not totally clear to me how a kind of messed up dosing strategy would preferentially affect people with higher viral loads, I think. But there was a clear interaction between adherence and viral loads. So your point's well taken. The back microphone, then the front microphone. Heidi Steiger, UNC. Hi, Heidi. I didn't recognize you. That's okay. So my question is more along the lines of looking at the spiral study and the issues of dosing parity and the real world of patients sticking to their drugs. I just wonder if you'd comment on those issues. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this issue of dissynchronous dosing, you know, where you have one tablet once a day and the others twice a day, I would fall back on, again, QD Merck and looking at the BID arm, where literally 90% of individuals were suppressed less than 50 at 48 weeks. That was obviously a dissynchronous treatment, and that was the best result we've ever had in a Phase III study. On the other hand, it's a study. People are being monitored and encouraged. And so I think that my own feeling is that if you can give people, you know, a single pill once a day, that's probably the best thing to do. And I didn't bring the – oh, maybe in my other – in my next talk, I'm going to show the Alabama data. But your points are really well taken. I agree. Which should be totally discarded, yes. Thank you for a very nice program. I want to make one comment regarding the case you presented to continue treatment to start treatment. In no other disease condition as serious as HIV, we make a diagnosis and then we tell a patient, oh, we will wait for five years to start treatment. In tuberculosis or in diabetes, say a patient has got a fasting blood sugar of 350 and a hemoglobin A1C of 12, I don't tell the patient we will wait five years to start treatment or we do a cardiac cath on a patient and he has got a 90% lesion of his left main, I don't tell him we will wait five years. HIV, you know, we need to go back and analyze the reason why we were not starting. Now, knowing that the havoc that the HIV causes and once daily one treatment is available, you know, I prescribe to Dr. David Ho's philosophy of starting early and hit early and hit hard. And that is the argument I think I would yeah. make yeah. in his case. So and I think in, in, in the majority on that very first case, 56% of the audience agreed completely with you. And so I think that we're all the same man for reasons that you're saying. Historically, the reason, there's two reasons why that we, we started later. One is because 
the original AZT studies were done in people with PCP or CD4 counts less than 200, and then it crept up. And it was AZT monotherapy that got blown away in the, um, what was the name of that study across the Atlantic? Uh, oh, Concord? Concord. Concord blew away. And then the pendulum swing because of toxicity. But now you're, you're right. I mean, historically, it's, it's a, it's a carry-forward. So I, I think, you know, most people would agree with you at this point. I don't think there's controversy too much. I'd like to disagree with him at this point, actually. <laughs> I, I want to respond to that because I think there's a distinct difference between diagnosing disease and curing the disease and diagnosing the disease and then trying to control the disease. So in the example of diabetes, I, I think uh, that's a good one. I mean, we all talk about the NA Accord study. But we really need to be looking at the Accord study. In that, in that case, and you brought up the example of diabetes, more aggressive uh, glycemic control, which would make sense from a, from a theoretic standpoint, you know, control diabetes, wouldn't you decrease the risk of long-term complications? In fact, cause increased rates of complications because lowering blood sugar was actually found to have all sorts of other deleterious effects, probably uh, release of um, counter-regulatory hormones and things like that. But my point is that with HIV, we're not curing HIV when we give diseases. We're controlling the disease. And so these meds may have untoward side effects. And until we have data to know that, that that's actually helpful, I think we have to look at the need and why there are studies like the STAR study, because we need the randomized data to actually prove that. And I think, you know, we always talk about things like the estrogen hormone study and here the ACCORD study. Sure. These are studies that prove, well, and the ACCORD study being a huge one, or any yeah. vitamin study you care to look at. So where is your CD, what, I mean, personally, your CD4 cut point for starting? My personal CD4 count is below 500, above 350. Okay. All right, so we're really talking about, we're kind of, again, dancing on the head of a pin, right? Because the average CD4 count of people showing up is about 300, mm -hmm. right? So we're talking about that group between 450 and higher and what to do. And you're right, a randomized study is being done to address but it. But I, I would say, even though my set point is where it is for me, based on my personal opinion in a way, there's still actually very poor data even to suggest that the 350 to 500 group does really that much better. There's, I would say that there's some recent... Uh, uh, data looking at showing not that much difference in some other cohorts between the 350 to 500 and, and certainly over 500 or 350 to 500 and below 350. Right. I think the take-home point, you're right, and that's why there's controversy. That's why it's 56 versus 40, whatever it was. So I think it's good representation between uh, two, the two uh, discussions. I think we're out of time for the questions. One, one question here was how did... How do we know that patient with CCR5 tropic? Um, it's because I just put it on the slide. But my thought is that um, for that to really be there, somebody has to order the test, right? And that test is expensive, which to me, if you're going to spend your time ordering that test and it comes back R5 tropic, you're probably going to lean towards using Moravroc in that if you're going to spend the resources. So I think thanks to Dr. Iran and the we're panel, and we're going to move on to the – and thanks to you guys for a great discussion. All right. So our next speaker is from North Carolina, um, and it's Dr. Joe Iron, um, who, who is uh, 